Okay. Are you going to play something on the recorder? Yeah. Are you blink? <laughs> That'd be excellent. Um, yeah, I think I should, instead of just using that, that canned music I used to have, I'll just play a little selection. Are you kidding? On a, I love that. I love that. that song, Matt. Do you like, lo- do you like that music? Graham? That's my, that's my ringtone. That's your jam. Yeah. <laughs> now we should have some like some nice little Morricone yeah. maybe to to come into this one. Hello and welcome back to the FilmNerds.com podcast series. It's been a while, uh, but we are back here and um, we've, we've got quite an occasion to, uh, to celebrate our return to the podcast series, which is the opening of Quentin Tarantino's latest effort, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, and as we talk to you, it's just... Closing out its opening weekend looks like it's going to finish with about thirty-seven and a half million, which is um, Tarantino's most commercially successful uh, opening weekend ever for any of his films. So, so far, it's uh, it's a movie that's made a big splash, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna get some critical reactions to it from uh, two of our regular film nerds contributors, Graham Flanagan and Ben Flanagan. Guys, thanks for uh, joining me. Glad to be here. Sure. So, I guess let's, um, you know, I, I, first let me mention that uh, for anybody who's who's interested in kind of recapping uh, what led up to this film and, and Tarantino's career in general, Ben did an excellent piece on the blog uh, just kind of going through film by film Tarantino's career. And I have to say, I pretty much agree with his assessment of every film uh in Tarantino's catalog there. I, I think Graham and Ben both, it would be fair to say, have a little bit less disdain for Death Proof than I do. Um, but I think all three of us had high ex- had sort of a combination of high expectations and yet, um, you know, a real need to not be disappointed uh, heading into Inglorious Bastards because the three of us all shared... <laughs> An immensely disappointing movie-going experience when we all three together saw uh, Volume 2 of Kill Bill. Um, Just to recap, (laughs) kind of our, 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 I think, what is a joint opinion. Graham, do you want to, you you know, tell everybody kind of your thoughts on on Kill Bill Volume 2 and what really, uh, what you and I and Ben all think was kind of a downturn in Tarantino's career? Uh, sure. I mean, we, you know, I had a very positive reaction to to Volume One, and and uh, I hadn't ever seen anything like it, and kind of it was kind of like a rebirth of Tarantino, but it was Part One, only Part One, and there there was a Part Two that had to happen, and so we all decided we uh, would rewatch Part One together, and so Matt had an eye up to his. Uh, father's business and we went in and, and watched the first film on this on this uh you know terrific projection system and had like ma- free mountain dews 
like <laughs> unlimited, and uh, it was great. And so we were, then we immediately it ended. And we rolled over to the rave to, to watch Volume Two, and um, you know, I, I think at the end we all we all started chatting about it, and it was just it all we were all kind of consistent with with uh, being having been disappointed is is what I remember. And I went back to see it two days later. Just kind of, I was like, okay, I kind of had my own movie, I guess, in mind. I need to be fair to to this movie, this movie itself, and to Tarantino, and give it another chance, and kind of, I guess, maybe be more objective, more objective about it. Um, and what, after watching it again, while some of the good things about that movie were still good, like the Pi May sequence, uh, among a few other things, the 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 majorly disappointing aspects were still just that, and you know, it, that's that's what it led to it remaining as one of the most disappointing movie going experiences ever. Ben, uh, just to to bring you into this, let, you know, talk a little about. Um, I guess you know, I don't think I'm not I'm not really sure what the majority opinion is on Tarantino before Inglorious Bastards because sometimes I feel like I'm in the minority in being uh, nervous or disappointed about his artistic direction, but. You know, could you maybe articulate for our listeners what you didn't like about Volume Two and Death Proof, and and in general, what made you believe that that Tarantino might not be the director that he once was? Uh, you know, at least at least as his sort of detractors believe. Well, I think as early, if you go back as early as Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, Tarantino seemed like a writer and a director. Uh, that sort of has something to prove to, you know, Hollywood and studio types and maybe even uh, as low as the festival circuit with his movies. And I think that he put a lot of heart and a lot of effort into those. And that's what sort of took people off guard. And that's what um, led to his innovative um, or reactions that called him an innovative filmmaker. And I think if you go to Jackie Brown, which I think is a really terrific movie, it's, it's really entertaining, but I think that's... Uh, the first warning sign where it seemed like Tarantino was sort of falling in love with his own writing and reading his own headlines, uh, to use that phrase, where he sort of indulged himself. Um, and a lot of people will throw around the term self-indulgent with Quentin Tarantino, and I think in, in some ways it's pretty fair uh, with Jackie Brown onward, uh, because Jackie Brown, that was kind of the first taste of um, major references uh, pop culture references and things that Tarantino had become familiar with. And there were things scattered here and there in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but it was an Elmore Leonard novel, and it was sort of Tarantino's... Uh, it, it, it was our um, taste of Tarantino's taste in literature and film. And so after that, we had to wait six years for Kill Bill Volume 1, and once that came out, a lot of people sort of regarded that as lesser Tarantino, sort of lighter fare... And it seemed like sort of a, a fanboy or geeks mixtape, uh, something that was inspired by grindhouse cinema, kung fu movies, uh, things of that sort. And so then you move into volume two, which we were disappointed by, and which was sort of uh, what some people say more of the same. Which you know we we don't think we don't think it was more of the same. Uh, and then you moved into Death Proof, which was another homage to things that Tarantino was very familiar with, but none, you know, most of us weren't, uh, except for the hardcore film geeks. And I think that uh, the reason so many people have disdain for him is because they think 
Tarantino might be a little bit too indulgent, and he's not making movies for fans or film lovers anymore. He's making movies for himself and his geek friends who are going to get his inside jokes. And, um, yeah, and so since Kill Bill Volume 2 and uh, Death Proof, it just kind of felt like overkill in terms of his wanting to please uh, anyone but the film fan out there. And I think that the notoriety Tarantino shares now with filmmakers like M. Night Shyamalan and even someone like Michael Bay where people out there are, you know, potentially detractors are going to hate no matter what he puts out there. I think that's really sort of unfair because of all of the great things Tarantino has done prior to those two movies and prior to the indulgences people sort of point out. Um, but I think it's a really unique identity that he sort of made for himself. Uh, but I do think it's unfair that, you know, a lot of people are going to hate it no matter what. And there are people that are going to love it no matter what, too. And and to bring it into Inglorious Bastards, I think everything you just mentioned, Ben, you know, there's this kind of dividing line and where he where he stopped being. I mean, I think I think it's really clear if you watch Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs um, you would not think that is the same director necessarily that made Death Proof and Kill Bill. Uh, I, I, I put both of the Kill Bill movies in there. I mean, I think there's a lot more that we all enjoyed about Volume One, but it still is not. It, it's very, very different in terms of a of a viewing experience from Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, which are these. I mean, there's a lot of style to them, but they're they're ultimately sort of grounded and set in a in a real world type setting whereas you know it seems like after Jackie Brown and Jackie Brown may have been that sort of transitional uh, film into this but it really seems like he decided he wasn't going to make movies that that were in any way resembling reality anymore once he once he got into Kill Bill and you know I think Inglorious Bastards sticks with that new Tarantino but I think I think the difference is that Inglorious Bastards uh, doesn't doesn't make the same as mistakes really that that he made in Kill Bill and Death Proof in terms of sort of being so obsessed with referencing and um, and and kind of trying to make it uh, a, a fanboy experience something that people would go oh well, that's that's a reference to this movie that's like this movie I, I think Inglorious Bastards exists on its own and it stands alone as a as an original work there's there's enough in it that to me even though it's in this sort of weird super stylized universe you know I, I think he's made it work this time where maybe he didn't necessarily make it work for an entire movie previous to this that's that's kind of my general feeling having seen it once at this point um and I, I, I'd be interested to hear both of your guys' take on this and, and whether you agree with me that this is... I'd say to sum it up, basically, this is the same style as the Kill Bill films and Death Proof, but I think he's figured out how to do this in a successful way and in a, in a more mature way is basically what, how I would say it. Graham, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, there, there are aspects of... Uh, well, first of all, let me say that you mentioned how you might hate Death Proof more than Ben and me. I think that, uh, you know, I, I am not a fan of Death Proof. Um, 
I, I, I said in my piece, CNN piece, that that uh, that, I, that Kurt Russell was solid and, and the action was solid. But beyond that, the bad things about that movie do not redeem the good things. Yeah, and I I, I, I think yeah. it's a I think it's a failure. So I, I I'd happily get in that boat with you, my friend. Well, we're um, on the same page mostly. I I just I you know. I don't even want to watch it again. It's it's to that point. I mean, I, I've found reasons to see Volume 2 again, and and there's a lot that I enjoy about it. I think there's so little that I enjoyed about Death Proof. It was so immature, uh, is how I would say it. I mean, it was, it was an adolescent film, you know, and it was the ultimate sort of example of this self-indulgence for Tarantino. And I think he really, he seemed to get over that with Inglorious Bastards, and it seemed mm-hmm. like he was making this movie for other, for Mm-hmm. For us, rather than for himself, really. Well, that's the thing is that that with Inglorious Bastards, I didn't feel, you know, once we were deep into it, like you know, an hour and a half into it, I didn't feel like I was reading. You know, I'd forgot kind of that I was watching a movie. I was just I was so in, uh, immersed in the story and and genuinely wanting to know how it was going to be resolved and what was going to happen to these characters. Whereas in Kill Bill Volume Two and Death Proof, he takes you out of that that zone so often with these long, rambling monologues about whatever you know pop culture institution they were talking about at the time, be it Superman or God knows what in Death Proof. Uh, that you know you're you're just kind of like okay, well, there was a movie going on here, but then Tarantino kind of asked us to read his little essay. But in in this movie, it felt like everything. Uh, was designed and executed with the objective of, uh, of of wanting to progress the story, and that's the key. And so I think that I, I do agree with you that with this movie that he has matured as a filmmaker because he's made a movie that will, um, you know, that will make people pay attention and that will make people care about what happens to the characters, and that's what he did here. And I had a, a great time with it. That's kind of my general uh, reaction. Ben, you want to give us your your general thoughts on on the movie and and whether you agree with Graham and I. Well, I you know I saw this on Friday, the day it came out, uh, the first show that was available. I, my, my anticipation for this kind of grew each week leading up to it. You know, I was very skeptical at first because of uh, you know my and our reactions to his past two movies, um, but I was still going to see the next Quentin Tarantino movie no matter what. And I was also skeptical because of some of the casting that I had heard about, uh, specifically Eli Roth and a few other people, some people that I had never heard of. Uh, compared to the people that I had heard he initially wanted to be in the movie, like Tim Roth and even Adam Sandler and Michael Madsen, uh, Tarantino regulars. Um, But I saw it, and I was really extremely um, and pleasantly surprised by it, even though I think since I was excited about it, I kind of got what I wanted, uh, which was, to me, what I feel is a great movie. Um, And I think it's right up there with Kill Bill Volume 1 based on my first reaction and potentially with more views um, it could be right up there with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs but um, throughout the movie while I was watching it and as time went by and as you know we got further into these chapters I think there were five total I kept asking myself uh, not aloud um When's it going to start getting cute? When's it going to start getting annoying? And when is it going to start feeling too long? And when do I start rolling my eyes? And 
as the movie went on and when we got closer to the end, it never happened. Um, I, I felt like every scene, every long scene in the movie was as long as it needed to be. And I was extremely um, immersed in the story, in the characters, and I was worried about what was going to happen to my favorite characters, you know? And um, the culmination, you know, to the final scene, to the final moment, to the, to the wonderful music during the closing credits, it just felt really good. It, it felt really good to have uh, this innovative, um, you know, instantly legendary filmmaker. It felt good to have him back, you know? And I, the way I put it in one of the things I wrote recently is that hopefully we can get one of Hollywood's best players back from the disabled list. Um, and it feels like he's back. It feels like, uh, you know, he's, he's almost 100%. And I can't wait to see this movie again. And I think, like every other Quentin Tarantino movie, it deserves further examination. You know, Ben, I'm not sure that, I, that I'd that i quite phrase it as he's back. Because I don't think this is the guy that made Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. I still don't think he is that guy anymore. I don't think he wants to make... Uh, I'm not sure he, he wants to make the sort of mature, grounded, you know, realistic movies like his first three films anymore I, I think he I think he has firmly you know planted himself into this category of making movies that are set in movies basically but you know I, I, I think he's I think he's just a much much better version right now of the guy that made the Kill Bill films um, you know because I, I but I you know and I'm okay with that I don't I don't I don't feel bad about it, and, and I was worried that, you know, I think if I had walked out of this movie and felt like it was right along the same path that Volume 2 and Death Proof were going down, that I'd be disappointed, and I'd I'd declare him, you know, dead, essentially, as, as a filmmaker. But, you know, I, I think what what surprised me about it was, um, you know, he, he didn't go back to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but but he's made what he's doing now work. And I, I really felt that at the end of the first chapter. Uh, I mean, to me, that first chapter was, uh, you know, that's the perfect sort of example of what this movie's about. It, it's, you know, it looks, it looks like something that's not of this time. It doesn't look like any other movie that's coming out in theaters right now. It looks like it looks like a Sergio Leone film, which is, you know, what he said, you know, it's what he set out to do. Um, but then he makes it his own because he brings in uh, one of the one of the most interesting just utterly watchable characters that he's ever written as a screenwriter, which is Colonel Landa or Landa. How do, how do we say it? Landa? Is it Landa? Hans Landa? Played by, so. played by uh, this Christoph Waltz character who, who just seems to come out of nowhere uh, with this role. And I think, you know, I, I talked to Ben about this. Is there, appear, there apparently is some sort of early buzz regarding Best Supporting Actor nomination for this guy. Um, I, I think he's, he's most definitely the highlight of this movie. And some people would call him one of the two main characters of the movie along with... Uh, Shosana, uh, and and whereas you know obviously this movie was marketed to us as okay this is Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain in a Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, I think Landa steals the show in terms of male performances. Uh, talk, 
Graham, talk a little about that character and just what makes him so interesting and compelling to watch. I agree. Uh, you know, I think right now this guy deserves the win um, for Best Supporting Actor. Um, again, he is out of nowhere. He he He's just kind of... It's and we haven't heard from him in in the American cinema yet, but I'm sure now that you know this guy's going to be big after this because he speaks he can speak English very well he can and he can speak obviously three other languages fluently. So this guy right now has kind of the keys to the the, the kingdom as far as an actor is concerned because if he's not getting roles in the U.S., he can now go to France or he can go to Germany or he can go to Italy and just star in films based on the credibility that this movie is going to give him. Uh, and as far as, yeah, his character goes, it's, it, it is the, the strongest aspect of this movie. It is the masterpiece within this movie. Um, I, you know, right now I think this movie is number one on my list. It, it did edge out Drag Me to Hell uh, as far, for number one movie of the year so far. But I don't think, I'm not going to call it, uh, a, I'm not going to call it a four-star, ma- I'm not going to call it a masterpiece like Tarantino uh, <laughs> says it is at the end of the movie. Uh, and I'll touch on the reasons why later, but. Uh, if this this is the most perfect thing about this movie. It's the it's its strongest attribute out of many strong attributes, and this is just a diamond in the rough kind of a find for Tarantino. That I guarantee, you know, this guy's going to probably work with Scorsese, Spielberg, whoever you know he wants to. Basically, he'll be his next few roles are probably going to be hardcore A list. And as far as his character in the movie, um, you know, it's just it slowly builds and builds in that in that first scene as to kind of this guy is so uh, cocky about how smart he is and, and he uh, revels in his methodology that, that all leads up to, to death. And Tarantino, you know, it's a combination of Tarantino's script and then just the way that this guy does it, his his tics, the way his... I remember there's one scene um, early on where, where it's just a close-up of him and he's listening to somebody and his face... I, I can't remember exact, the exact scene, but his face just kind of goes from a smile to, to anger. And, you know, so this guy's got the goods and, um, I'm just, I'm happy for, for him and for Tarantino because he's obviously, uh, Tarantino is obviously just, you know, proven that he has the knack for spotting huge talents. And again, I, I think he deserves the win at this point. And I, you know, I think Harvey definitely will get him in the, the final five. Ben, uh, I want to talk about some of the other performances in the movie. Obviously, I mentioned I think Shosana was a was a surprise. The Melanie Laurent who plays her, um, you know, I think just from the marketing. I mean, I I sort of intentionally stayed away from reading any early reviews of this movie. I didn't want to I didn't want to be, uh, you know, prejudiced to, to, towards anything going in. I was really surprised at uh, at her performance as well, and and just how much time we spent with that character. I mean, obviously Tarantino's had strong female characters, which you've uh, which you've sort of written extensively about uh, at the academic level, Ben. But t- talk to me about maybe her performance, and then uh, any other sort of smaller performances that that stand out to you in this movie. Well, um, I you know back when this script had leaked online, I I, I you know on pur- purposely did not read the script. I don't do that. I don't like doing that because I feel like that ruins any experience at the movies. But uh, I did read some reviews of the script, and they had mentioned that Tarantino, this movie wasn't necessarily about the bastards, and we heard about that very early on before this movie even went into production. We heard that the Shoshana 
Dreyfus character was arguably the protagonist of the film. And we read about that in movie reviews once the movie had been made and brought to Cannes. And I think that that probably made a few people skeptical. Uh, and based on what I had heard about the Bastards, it made me skeptical as well because I just wanted to see a movie about these guys uh, behind enemy lines killing Nazis. But um, I think Tarantino really fleshed out one of his best char- best female characters for sure, but best overall characters in a long time uh, since Kill Bill Volume 1, especially, in Shoshana. And I think Melanie, Melanie Laurent um, does a terrific job. And here's where I think um, her performance, this is why I think her performance is so strong and so many others um, are as well. And this is a credit to Tarantino. He lets them speak in their native language. Um, he could have easily made this movie that takes place in France and features Germans, um, French people, and uh, to some extent Italians. Um, and he could have let them speak in English with bad accents. And, you know, a movie like Valkyrie sort of got away with it with a shortcut. And Tarantino even really kind of uh, uh, beautifully gets away with it at the beginning in the opening scene where they switch from French to English. Yeah. Um, that was great, actually. There were there was audible laughter kind of throughout my theater when that ha- when they switched to English. I think people sort of got the joke there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, no, I, th- I thought she was great. I really, really liked um, her and Daniel Bruhl's uh, interplay together. I thought that he he's the German actor that plays um, what what is Z- his name? Zoller Frederick Zoller. Yeah, uh, the German the the Nazi soldier they've made the nation's pride about. I thought that their little uh, non-romance, I guess you could say, was a, a really good um, story that had a lot of really poignant moments, and especially the, the clim- their uh, climax, I guess you could call it, towards the end of the film. Lots of sweet, sweet moments and sort of bitter moments as well between the two, because you've got Melanie Laurent, who has to uh, play this girl whose family has been murdered uh, very early in her lifetime, and she has basically, I mean, the Nazis are her sworn enemies, and here she has this young, um, you know, amiable Nazi that is hitting on her and uh, potentially pursuing a romance with her. And it's not as if she's really turning him down, but it's almost as if she doesn't really notice his advances or is blatantly ignoring his advances because she's, you know, she's kind of jaded in her life already because of how traumatic that event was uh, early in her life. But, um, you know, she also sets out on this mission that she is looking forward to, and she has tunnel vision throughout the entire movie. Uh, She wants to meet her objective. So I thought she was wonderful, Um, and I'm glad he cast a French actress in the role. And uh, as as for other performances, I I agree with the Christoph Waltz performance. Uh, I was telling Graham earlier that even the way uh, Waltz ate the dessert in the restaurant, yes, yes. The, the, the strudel that he shares with the Shoshana character, the way he ate that really got to me, like, on, on a weird level. Graham said it made him hungry, but it it kind of disgusted me. It was a little, I, I think what it was doing, it's that kind of, uh, it's like super efficient, it's the perfect, it's like the way that a fascist would eat dessert, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you could hear every single piece that he chewed in his mouth, you know, and the way he... Took, he took really big bites right. out of it too, you know. And Graham mentioned that you know they they even put the extreme close up on the the whipped cream 
uh, before he eats it. But that that was just a really terrifically nuanced uh, moment by Waltz and Tarantino, what uh, very well written. Um, I was a big fan of uh, Till Schweiger's performance as um, the Nazi turncoat Hugo Stiglitz. And I was also a fan, I, I don't know the actor's name, and I can't remember the character's name either, but of the uh, the Austrian-born bastard uh, that goes mm-hmm. into the tavern. Yeah, he was um, very good. Yeah, He was good, and uh, Diane Kruger, I was impressed with. She got to speak uh, her native language, and um, Michael Fassbender, I thought, was excellent. And he, he played Archie Hickox, the film critic-turned-British officer, uh, who sort you know spoke German not quite well enough. But anyway... Um, Matt, let me let me touch upon something regarding Michael Fassbender and this performance. And you had mentioned that he didn't quite reach the level of Reservoir Dogs. And I've got to say, uh, I I sort of felt the same anxiety for Archie Hickox in this movie, especially during the tavern scene. The same anxiety that I felt for Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs of you know his his getting found out i guess in the tavern and uh and matt i guess we should probably go ahead and tag a spoiler alert um yeah i think if we want to if we want to discuss the the tavern sequence which i think i think it does deserve a few moments of discussion here we should say uh skip ahead a bit because we're probably going to talk about what happens there and that that is that comprises most of is is that chapter called operation Kino. Kino, Operation yeah. Kino. So that's the entire chapter, which, by the way, before we get into the tavern sequence, I believe it opens with a fantastic little scene that is right out of another genre of World War II movies, which are these sort of English, uh, stiff upper lip, you know, kind of... Uh, I, I just absolutely love that interplay between Fassbender and Mike Myers, who yeah. I think does... that was one of the best scenes of the movie. Does a really fun little performance that that proves again that Mike Myers is talented enough to go out there and be and be doing little funny comic characters without having to sort of blow it up into these big you know huge uh turds yeah exactly but uh, yeah and we've got and and the great little Winston Churchill guy in the background uh but but so after after we get past that scene basically does anybody have a runtime for exactly how long this these characters are in that uh, are in that tavern? Because it, I mean, it's an extraordinarily long scene. It felt like to me, it felt between twenty and thirty minutes, like twenty five minutes. I would probably. I think guess. it's at least a half hour. At least. I I, I mean, I it, it was so much. It, it might just be because so much happens in this scene, but but basically, you know. Ben, you were you were talking about how uh, you touched on, you know, Reservoir Dogs sort of uh, undertones to that scene, and I, I guess I would agree with you because there is, uh, just like in the first chapter, there's a there's a constant, slow, gradual building of tension uh, in that scene, and and the payoff, you know, is is absolutely there when it happens, and it's and you know. I, w- I would say that's probably the first. That's the first point in the movie at which we are really, uh, really involved with the characters and really sort of nervous and worried about what's going to happen in the story. Right. Um, and Tarantino has really uh, put this quite well in some interviews I've seen him and read him 
in, uh, you know, and you know how much he likes talking about his own work. He said this hundreds of times in different interviews. He says that with this kind of scene and different ones throughout the movie, he, um, with this, the way he writes it, he is trying to pull a rubber band as tight as he can pull it before it breaks. And I guess, uh, the climax is the rubber band breaking and he, he pulls it quite a bit in this scene. And yes, this was probably where I felt the most nervous, even though I've read quite a bit about this scene leading up to it. Um, I heard that it culminated in a shootout and it's one of the most intense, uh, short, (laughs) it's one of the shortest shootouts I've ever seen. But even though, even in its, um, how short it is in its length, it's, uh, it it really, um, had, had an effect on me. But uh, I think that a lot of the credit, aside from Quentin Tarantino's brilliant writing and some of his best writing in a long time in the scene, goes to the actor whose name I don't know plays the German officer that spots Archie Hickok's accent. Uh, not the first German, you know, the drunk one who's had the kid, uh, but the next one who sort of instigates the entire conversation. Right. Um, he was awesome in it. And he was, even though he didn't look the part necessarily at first glance, he was pretty uh, scary. You know, he was a scary character, and you didn't really know what he was going to do. Um, very unpredictable and in a, a very precarious situation, too. And I, I just thought it was brilliant. And, Matt, I, I, you know, you, you two have already mentioned how Tarantino has achieved a certain maturity, uh, again, with this movie. And I think that a lot of that comes out of this sequence in particular. And I think it does harken back to the days of Reservoir Dogs and even Pulp Fiction. I mean, can you? It, it, it reminded me of the same intensity of the Gold Watch basement sequence or the final uh, moment between Jules and Tim Roth in the cafe in Pulp Fiction. I just kind of it kind of yeah. Certainly, had, certainly it, the end of the scene after the first shootout has taken place, and we have this this second little standoff. That that was very much. Uh, reminded me of the the pulp fiction diner scene right right but i would i would go even uh prior to that man uh like seriously when when they're playing the game and when uh when the accent has been spotted i like how the actor said i'm not talking to you officer munich or you commander frankfurt Mm -hmm. I'm i'm talking to lieutenant i don't know uh what you know that was just that was brilliant yeah, and it was interesting that he, he. I mean, he essentially wrote. I, I, I don't know uh, if Tarantino was was caring at all about the subtleties of the other languages, but he certainly wrote the subtitles uh, as if they would have been spoken by Samuel L. Jackson in English. Basically, it's it was Tarantino writing for sure. That line you just mentioned is a good example of that. I mean, it's it's sort of typical Tarantino dialogue it's 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 kind of like uh when 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 samuel jackson says uh i don't remember asking you a goddamn thing (laughs) in pulp fiction but uh but that i i you know that the tavern scene is amazing and um i i love my favorite moment in that scene was when uh stiglitz (laughs) jumped in and started yelling at the young drunk uh soldier Saying, you know, you but you must be out of your mind, you know, or you're either you're either drunk or half mad to dare to disrespect this guy, and that's when the tension just kind of that's when they start dialing it up for me. Uh, and I, I agree about this about the scene. And I, I would guess too, probably about twenty five minutes at, at most. 
for this, but it felt like it did not feel long to me. Uh, I was loving every minute of it. Well, what did you think of the Stiglitz moment uh, during that scene where it just kind of like pans over, drifts over to him, and he's just kind of staring uh, into nowhere, and it flashes back. It does that guitar riff again, and it flashes back to him getting whipped, you know? And I guess that was sort of uh, to communicate that he knew who this guy was. Well, I don't know. I think it might have just been that he's we're, crazy. We're, we're told that that he was obviously in prison or punished somehow, and and this is why he started killing Nazis in the first place. And somehow being around this, maybe it wasn't this specific guy, but somehow being around this guy was making him have another episode here, which is why he's ultimately unable to control himself. Right, like it's just in his general disposition towards Nazis. Like obviously, the hatred for Nazis has gotten into his bloodstream, and it's like it's like a you know a cocaine addict being around cocaine, uh, you know, kind of getting a whiff of it. I guess they're they're just like gotta have it. And this guy is just like, wow, I'm sitting next to the person that I dream about killing all day and all night like why am i not killing him right now you know yeah yeah and what really set that what really took that scene to the next level for me too and i think that this was deliberate was how much these characters are drinking you know mm-hmm. they're they're swigging glass after glass of whiskey and beer mm-hmm. i like the giant getting, glass boot filled with beer mm-hmm. oh man yeah they're they're all just getting drunk which is going to escalate even more violence to come <laughs> You know, yep. all these guys are so trigger happy. They've got their they've got their machine guns right next to their sides, and if one thing goes wrong, then they're all going to go off. And it just yeah, so that happens was, that it does. One, uh, I liked in the scene prior to the tavern uh, with between Archie Hickox and and um, God, I'm forgetting his name again. Still Stiglitz. Stiglitz. <laughs> uh, when he's he's sharpening his knife on his belt, and the Archie Hickox goes in there, kind of is like. Okay, you know, I know it's it reminded me of uh the scene in Slapshot where the <laughs> the the, na- the national anthem's playing there's just been this fight and uh the Hanson brothers are standing there and the referee is looking at the Hanson brothers while the national anthem's going on they're not doing anything they're just standing there and the referee just keeps looking at him he runs over to him and he's like now listen I don't want it. I don't want any issues any problems out of you and he goes try to listen to the fucking song man because <laughs> it's like the guys just kind of it's like Archie, Archie Hickox can just kind of get this vibe that this dude is is uh, uh, you know he is gonna he is a fuse you know ready to light to 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 burn up and uh, the guy says one of the, my favorite lines in the movie he says don't I look calm to you yeah. <laughs> I love that I love that 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 uh, little bit a lot I and mean, he's one of my favorite characters in the whole movie well, Matt uh, not to not to beat this you know, scene to the ground here, but um, just one more point to add to it. You and I had spoke about how the the scene, once it's over and once we figure out why they're in there, it wasn't even anything that advanced the plot necessarily. No, it really doesn't, yeah. You know? But, see, the, you know, you learn that they're in there to get tuxedos of all things, you know, and that's what led to this carnage that took place. But to me, like, it... it, it shows me and i i think it, this was on purpose as well it it tells me that when you're behind enemy lines one little thing can completely uh ruin the mission or alter your objective one little thing one gone wrong can get people killed 
uh, th- that quickly, you know, at the snap of your finger. And it it's like you're, this is something as trivial as clothing that they're worried about and that this uh, awfully – uh, risky maneuver by Bridget von Hammers- Hammersmack, or I can't remember how to pronounce her name. Ham- Hammersmark. Uh, right, Hammersmark, that's right. This ridiculous uh, situation that she's put the bastards in, one that Brad Pitt acknowledges and eventually punishes her for uh, by sticking his finger in her open wound. Um, it's just like, why would you put yourself in this this dangerous situation when you're behind enemy lines, you know? We, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think one of the things that it accomplishes, maybe, um, if you wanna if you wanna look for what it does for the story at large, is like you said, it sets up. It, it sort of reminds us that not much has to go wrong for it to all fall apart, and so that sort of sets us up for the for the the final chapter, the final sort of resolution, where the bastards are trying to execute their plan at the same time Shosana's trying to execute. A much simpler plan, which is which is probably why hers succeeds. Um, you know, basically, we're just looking for anything to go wrong. You know, it, it, it doesn't. It's not. We know it's not going to take much. And as soon as we hear Brad Pitt's uh, version of Italian, we know it's probably not going to work out for him. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I without without going in into the the final scene too much. Um, you know, tell me if you, you know, I guess what you guys felt about it as, as far as a resolution to the movie, this is the one thing that I probably feel like I need a second viewing to, to really solidify how I feel about how it resolves. Um, because, you know, it's fun and it's kind of silly how it all ends. Um, but I don't know if I need, if I necessarily really enjoyed watching uh, what is basically a reverse holocaust sequence you know i mean i i'm sure that's that's what the intention was it's supposed to be the opposite version of say a schindler's list gas chamber sequence or something you know i think i think tarantino was obviously being distasteful on purpose there uh, and I guess I, what I'm saying is I haven't really decided how I feel about it yet, uh, whether whether I'm more disgusted than amused, uh, you know, or the other way around. I, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, Graham. What, what how did you feel about the way this thing sort of wraps up? Uh, you know, as far as it kind of existing in its own, I'm, you know, like you said, I like your point about Tarantino moving away from his reality based, you know, crime movies and into this movie, movie world, I'll call it that That this is kind of a super movie where anything goes and it's just pure imagination. It's like a little kid writing a, you know, like a, you know, going home, writing a story to turn into English the next day is what this felt like. So in terms of that, you can accept that, that, that it exists in this kind of world and it just makes for great entertainment, great Im- imagery. Um, it's, it's obviously, it breaks the the, the code of realism by, you know, re, re, uh, imagining history. But, you know, I, I thought it was entertaining. I've always thought that, Hey, why not make a, make a movie kind of fantasizing that you do? Like what if, what if at the end of Valkyrie, we saw Hitler's head, you know, explode, uh, and actually did get him, you know, it doesn't, there's no rule that says that you can't reimagine things. And I think that 
yeah, it's kind of ballsy on the part of Tarantino to do that because he's going to get a lot of people saying, oh, this is ridiculous. But he's having fun, and I just thought it was a lot of fun, and it was shot well, and it was a, it was a, an awesome action sequence. So I have no problem with it. Ben, what's your feeling about it? Uh, well, to me, it felt like the good guys were winning, you know? Um, it didn't feel a little bit icky that, that they're spraying people in a theater with bullets from a, from a balcony? Well, you've got to consider who they're spraying with the bullets. Oh, I understand man. they're not <laughs> I mean, good. They're not good people. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's just like they're killing the bad guys. You know, they're they're <laughs> they're they're after the Nazis. They're after the Nazis who are responsible for the millions of deaths that uh, you know the deaths of people that may or may not be related to some of the bastards. You know what right, I mean? Right, and these are like the shot. these are like the high class people that that you know they they live their lavish lifestyles of uh, privilege and luxury. But they're the very ones funding these death camps that, you know, tear families apart and destroy lives. So I think that they definitely deserve what they got. So well, you, you, you sympathize with the Nazi. <laughs> yeah, Matt. I'm God, you're, been, you, you've hit a new low, my friend. Just been I didn't think it was Nazi possible after 2004. <laughs> I'm just saying, look, I, I'm just saying that, you know, the whole – I, I'm I'm not much of a I'm not much of a uh, fighter really I'm you know <laughs> I'm I would say obviously the Nazis are an easy target and if you you I don't think what I'm saying is I don't think he'd be able to pull that off if they weren't Nazis if it was anything else at all literally well, that's anything the point. else it it wouldn't that's work the point yeah is that they these people deserve to be burned alive and shot at because of the horrible things that they've done and are doing to innocent people. So you're right, but that the circumstances of, the, of this movie make it okay. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I I probably need to give it another watch and and uh you know, I I was ultimately snickering and was entertained by it. I just wasn't sure if it was okay for me to be for me to be so amused by it cuz it's pretty yes. it's pretty grim and gross, but uh You're right, man. It wouldn't be okay if, if it were a room of girl scouts. You're right. <laughs> Point taken. Matt, um, I, you know, one one sequence, one one plot um, line that I would like to touch upon is the fate of Hans Landa. Um, yeah, and absolutely. In the, the direction that he takes in the movie, and just to sort of lay it out there, and again, this is a major spoiler. So if you if you haven't seen it, please please move on. Um, in, you know, he finds out pretty early on who Brad Pitt and Eli Roth and Omar Doom are, and he finds out that Diane Kruger is up to no good and that she's a traitor, and he's he's very aware of what's going on. Of course, he does not know what's happening with Shoshana and her scheme to uh, burn the movie theater down. But um, he it, it's revealed that he um, takes Brad Pitt's dynamite that's been strapped to his leg and puts it under one of the chairs in the movie theater, and he lets Eli Roth and Omar Doom uh, go on with the plan to blow up the theater. He puts it under yeah. Hitler's chair, actually. Right. Does he? Yeah, he actually yes. slips it under okay. Hitler's chair, yeah. Okay, yeah, exactly. So it's like he is just completely turned on the Third Reich uh, and in exchange for immunity, basically, from the United States so he can go live on an island in Nantucket <laughs> uh, in the United States and have the Congressional Medal of Honor. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, he wants it to look like he was the hero and he was one of the 
main uh, plan hatchers, I guess, in Operation Kino. Um, and so basically he helps the Allies win World War III by taking down the Third Reich. What did you, Matt, what did you think of uh, Landis' decision? And after that, what did you think of Brad Pitt's decision? Well, uh, I think this... I think this was fantastic, and in a way, this the the way that Landa's storyline is wrapped up to me made me go for sure. Okay, this guy has figured something out since Kill Bill Volume Two because I think more there were a lot of things wrong with Volume Two, but I think what we all felt like was the the ultimate failing of it was that in a movie called Kill Bill, uh, a revenge film that that the the final act of vengeance was such a letdown it was so anticlimactic well this guy is is at least as bad a dude as bill and and certainly bill you know he's certainly written to be more, a more imposing character than bill this is a this is a bad bad guy for the whole movie he's just pure liquid evil and he gets uh, you know, we, we're sort of led to believe that he's that he's figured out a way, even though he does something that's sort of good by destroying Nazi Germany and, and helping to end it. Uh, he's still a bad guy, and he and he wants to walk away from it. Uh, and he's figured out this perfect little plan, and he's gloating in how smart he is. And he gets a very very satisfying sort of vengeance uh, that I think. I mean, that's that's how you enact revenge in a movie. That's how you give a bad guy what's coming to him. Um, you know, and, and it was it was so fun and satisfying to see how how he ends up. You know, he's not dead because that I think almost it would have been a letdown and and in a way it is a letdown that that Bill dies in Kill Bill. But this guy gets this this really humiliating you know, it, in in multiple ways. I mean, it's it's obviously disgusting and physically painful to watch, uh, but it's also you know it's humiliating. He'll never he all he wants to do is walk away from his affiliation with the Nazi Party and and live out the rest of his days comfortably. Well, now he'll you know he'll never be able to remove himself from the Nazi Party. He will forever be uh, linked in. With that, with what he's done, and uh, you know, obviously, it it doesn't take it that seriously. It's it's more of a you know of a wink in the end of this movie. But you know, I think in terms of just looking at it from within the story, I think it's the I think it's the perfect way for Landa to to end up. And I think it's you know, like I said, I think it shows Tarantino's ability to balance uh, you know a good story resolution with you know without you know I I think he might have been trying to sort of go back towards the realism in volume two and I think that's what let him down he he put us all in that movie movie world and and then he tried to sort of come away from that well I think he stays consistent throughout Inglorious Bastards and I think Landa's Landa's sort of you know desserts in this movie are are the perfect way to to end it from what from everything that's come before it well you know i think that um and i i'd like to hear your reaction too graham but um you talked about how he he's sort of slyly 
making this decision to uh, live a comfortable life. And he, honestly, it reveals so much about this character to me, and it, it's an act of cowardice on his part. He comes across to me as a coward uh, when he turns his own people in, loses the war for them on purpose, wins it for the Allies, and thinks he can get off scot-free as you know a hero, a rich, you know, a rich man, someone who lives on you know his own island, so to speak. I mean, I don't, um, I don't think he believes in the cause. I mean, I think that's sort of clear from the beginning when he says that he doesn't really buy the Nazi propaganda about the Jews, and that he almost sort of has respect for them in a way because he. You know, it's all it's all a job to him, really. I think I think everything that he does is about personal achievement. He just right. wants to be good at what he does, and and he's just completely amoral. You know, he he doesn't have this big grand uh, agenda that he's trying to push forward, like like say Hitler does. Uh, you know, he he's just good at what he does, and he's he's a psychopath basically, and and so he's just. You know, I, I don't think he. I don't think he would really have any attachment to the Third Reich necessarily. Right, he's, he's kind just, of a hired hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's just he's just all about Landa. He just wants to be, uh, you know. Well, you know, he kind of turns a one eighty because at the beginning of the movie, he has embraced his nickname, the Jew Hunter, and you know, he tell he tells the farmer at the beginning that, you know, he, he's kind of uh he kind of likes the nickname or he takes pride in the nickname because he's good at what he does. And at the end when he's talking to Brad Pitt and BJ Novak, he sort of expresses a bit of disdain for the nickname once they bring it up. But uh Grant I'm curious, what what did you think about this this uh development in the plot? I just made it made perfect sense to me. Um, I did not see it coming that he would that he would sell out the Nazis, but it again makes perfect sense that this guy is the very rat that he talks about at the beginning when he's trying to describe uh, the people he hunts. You know, he calls them rats, uh, but then it turns out that that's what he is. He's he has no integrity. Um, he has no you know in, in the first place because of what he does for a living. You know, uh, hunting out hunting. And uh, murdering innocent people, um, and then the fact that he then it goes on because he doesn't even have enough integrity to remain loyal to the people he works for, or says he you know supports. So I just think it, it makes perfect sense with a, a guy like him. This guy is a true villain, and um, you know, I think a lot of credit goes to Tarantino for creating a true villain. And this guy just doesn't has no the only the only sympathetic uh, attribute he had was when they. Was when Diane Kruger mentions that he is good at betting the ladies, saying that she didn't want to become part a part of his honey pot. I like that line. <laughs> it's kind of suggested. So I was like, oh, okay, he's a player too, huh? Um, which doesn't surprise me because this guy's so brilliant. So yeah, I mean, I think he, you know, he's just a great villain. And uh, usually villains just kind of ride it out all the way until they get killed. But in this case, Tarantino had him <laughs> even turn on his own party. Which is just another a, a great stroke on his part. Um, but if we can, I want to uh, turn attention, ask you guys what you think of uh, of the use of the Bowie song. See these eyes so green. I can stare for a thousand years. 
Yeah, it was a it was a a low point for me. I mean, it wasn't a perfect movie, and there were a few things. You know, Ben said he kept waiting on uh, a, a point in the movie where he had to roll his eyes, and I had a couple, but they weren't. I mean, they weren't bad, and they weren't lengthy either. You know, I think they were little nitpicky things, and the uh, and they're the. I mean, that's the reason I haven't mentioned any of them because I don't think they ruined the experience. I think the Bowie song was didn't fit for me. It was a poor choice for as, as far as uh, you know. I, I feel like so much of the music in this movie is perfectly evocative of of what he's trying to create. This little feel, this little you know, half Leone, half uh, you know, Bridge on the River Quiet type movie. And you know, the Bowie song just sticks out like a sore thumb, and it's also used. Uh, is it used in its entirety? I mean, it, it seems like it plays for a while. They're about, if not the whole thing. Yeah, you know, I wasn't crazy about that. I think I think Ben and I both discussed, although Eli Roth was not nearly as annoying as I expected him to be, uh, he's a little over the top and does kind of stick out a little bit. I don't know, Ben, what do you what do you what do you feel about the the uh, Bowie song? Did it bother you? No, I thought I really did because you know, number one, I, I'm a Bowie fan, number one, and I had never heard that song um, up to this point. Uh, so that that was nice. It, I think it's a cool song. But it just sort of, I, I think that the placement was really cool because it comes shortly after the tavern scene, number one, when you've just sort of been blown, blown away already. And uh, Tarantino kind of unleashes this bombshell of a music choice. And, you know, one thing Tarantino is well known for now is... Um, his taste in music in terms of how he places it. He's always been very good at it, um, except for, I would say, uh, most of Kill Bill Volume 2 and uh, some of Death Proof, which does have a lot of good songs in it. But um, I don't know. To me, it just worked. because You've got this fantasy world where, Graham, you said anything goes. and Yeah, but I not think- Nazis in the 80s. That doesn't go. But this is, I, I don't know, this isn't, you know, he's already altered so much of reality up to that point that I think that he sort of has the freedom to do that, too, you know? And he's already, he's already, yes, he, it's inconsistent with all of the other uh, Morricone music, which sort of feels more appropriate with period, um, a period movie like one set in World War II or in the Old West or something like that. But I don't know, I just think that when you've got sort of this, uh, fantastic sort of rock and roll vibe that you've got these you know you've kind of got these rock star characters like the bastards um, it, it just felt right to me it felt it felt good and what I thought was interesting I read this uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the site totalfilm.com um, they do all sorts of lists you know and I was reading uh, they had their top 20 Tarantino music moments and it had all of these standards, you know, it had like Miserloo and Pulp Fiction stuck in the middle with you. Uh, and they had some good ones too, like, you know, the Delphonics and Jackie Brown. That did <laughs> play your mind. And they had some good ones. And then I got to their number one, and their number one Tarantino music moment is Cat People in Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. And I thought that that mm-hmm. was kind of interesting. And I don't think it's his best music moment ever. I, I what, would not say that. What song is that, Ben? It's called Cat People. Where where does that where does that fall in the movie? That's it. That's the Bowie song. It's a it's the Bowie song. Yeah, they said that's their number one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> to me, I mean, to me, it was it it was the only worrisome part of the movie to me because it reminded me musically 
Although I like David Bowie so much of that awful song that he plays during that blue lit uh, sequence <laughs> in Volume Two, right before, <laughs> right before she has her showdown with Bill. Oh no! Where she puts way, the daughter man. in bed or whatever. Oh, no what a, way. That's dude. Yeah. That that's atrocious. That that was like that that was part of what killed the volume two experience <laughs> that's that's seriously the, that's the worst piece of music he's ever put in any of his movies I think yeah it, no dude yeah. uh, no way it, it doesn't deserve that it doesn't deserve to be mentioned along i'm just with saying that. i'm just saying like like <laughs> genre wise when you're talking about music that those two songs don't sound like any of the other music that he's put in his movies it seems like like he, it seems like you get a, a pretty good read on what his musical taste is, and then those two songs, they don't seem to belong in that in that uh, catalog of music that he's into. Well, Graham, what do you think? Uh, I, you know, I think that that you know, it's, it's it's become known that he became has become Tarantino has become close with Sofia Coppola, and now that you think about it, um, I can I'm I'm kind of looking at this and maybe reading it as. You know, you look at Tarantino makes references to other directors all the time. That this might be him kind of referencing what she did with uh, Marie Antoinette. It's kind of an homage to that, by like, taking music from a different time period and playing it uh, in a movie where it's a, to- a you know totally different time period. Uh, I know it's been done before in the past, but that's what it reminded me of. You know, and and I think that it kind of the. It, the, the the placement in the movie it kind of made a music video out of the song and it was kind of like this little this little kind of short film within the movie and it kind of stood alone and I think that just the usage of it and the placement of it and and what the scene was about while it was playing uh, did not bother me now had had they played a, a Bowie song during uh, as the bastards marched. You know, through the woods, that might have been different, but I think that that, uh, that I I didn't mind it. I thought that it was it's a, definitely a stylish pick, and it's leading to what I want, how I want to kind of conclude with this once we get to it with my kind of overall thoughts about this movie. But uh, I didn't mind it at all. I mean, it, it it worked, and and man, I loved I loved that sequence of shots that it, where it slowly dissolved uh, from wide shot to eventual close up. Uh, of of Shoshana staring out the window as yeah, it first started. I thought that was nice. That was very, uh, you know, if anything, that fit with the Bowie song, <laughs> you know, in terms st- like style wise. That that's the kind of thing that you would expect to see uh, with a Bowie song playing in the background. It was it was sort of music. It was like eighties music video ish, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Graham, you know. I think we should go ahead and start wrapping up, but you know, you mentioned earlier in the show that you uh, you believe Brad Pitt's final line is is Tarantino speaking, and you know, I think he's certainly he's been working on this movie for a long time. I mean, I, I think it it was at least ten years ago the first time that he that he mentioned something about it. Um, you know. We don't we don't know where he's going next. There there's nothing really. I mean he's he's vaguely mentioned a few other projects, probably jokingly. Um, but you know, do you guys do you guys first off you know, I guess do you guys feel like this is this is what Tarantino has been building towards his whole career, uh, and 
and if so, you know, can he? Where does he go next? I guess. What you know? Do you guys think that that Tarantino continues down this sort of uh, this sort of spaghetti western? You know, th- this meshing of of very particular movie styles that that he's now fallen into, or just give me your general thoughts, Grandma. Wrapping up of of okay. where Tarantino is and where he's going. Well, I thought that that the Kill Bill saga was to be once after I'd seen Volume One. I thought that Volume Two was going to, you know, conclude his master, his real masterpiece, um, with just this grand, wonderful, dramatic action film, revenge film that was just going to be perfection, and which is what the set, the first movie set it up for. Um, so with this, no, I don't, I don't think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I don't think it's his masterpiece. I think that his his masterpieces are Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Um, but this movie definitely puts him back in the plus column. You know, this this is going to be looked back as as one of his you know one of his solid films. Um, it's it's not. <laughs> I, I think it's a great movie. I give it three and a half out of four. I just think that that um, it is it is the movie is all over the place. You know, it's it's still focusing on a lot of different characters. Some characters don't get uh, maybe as much attention as some people might wish they did, and, and I'm, I'm saying that about the bastards themselves. I think a few of them are just kind of background dressing. Um, that, and I think that when they bring in the little man, aka Ryan from the office, he's just kind of out of nowhere, and it's like they just grabbed a random bastard out of the hat to, to kind of be in the movie at the end. And I don't know how much Universal had to do with that, you know, since they also own NBC. Which runs the office? Uh, I was disappointed. Saying, I was disappointed we didn't get the kid from Freaks and Geeks more. No, oh, yeah, totally. He, I mean, they were like basically glorified extras in this movie. He at least he got to shoot a machine gun at one point in the movie. Uh, but <laughs> I think I, you know, as far as where he goes from here, I think that Tarantino still has that masterpiece in him, and it's going to be. I, I think it, it is a super movie, as we're saying, a movie movie where he takes a genre, be it. Western or or martial arts or war or sci-fi, I think that he still has it in him. Uh, but he's just got to focus a little bit more and say, you know what, I'm just going to make a, a movie from A to B, from A to Z, that Sergio Leone would have made, something like that, where it's, you know, I, I'm not going to be self-indulgent. I'm going to let the story and characters speak for themselves. Um which I think is kind of what he did. He, it's what he did in Reservoir Dogs. Okay, I mean he he used his immense talents to make the, one of the greatest heist movies of all time, and that movie is a classic. So I think he's going to be able to do that to kind of dial down his personality, let the movie movie let the movie speak for him for itself. And I think that hopefully at least two or three down the line he can do that. I really want him to make a western, I, and that's that's where I, I'd really like to see him go. But I, again. This movie puts him back in the plus column, and I, I just can't wait to see what he does next. I, I think it's clear that of all of his many influences, Sergio Leone is seems to be the most prominent. It seems to have the most uh, direct influence on Tarantino in terms of that the way that he builds his characters as these kind of broad, uh, you know, a little bit cartoonish, and you know, obviously the the sort of musical and visual style. I think I think. He, he draws more from Leone than anybody else, and I would certainly love to see him do a Western. Ben, your thoughts? 
regarding the last line of the movie, I, you know, I I've, I had a really good feeling when I left the movie. I thought that he just ended it on about as good of a note as he could have. Not only with Brad Pitt's line and the shot and the way he, you know, I always pay attention to the way people cut to black. You know what I mean? The way the way they put that exclamation point on their movie, and he's always uh, been pretty good at doing that. Uh, most notably, probably with uh, Kill Bill Volume One. Um, but the way we get the credit written and directed by Tarantino with that brilliant Ennio Morricone music, which completely it made me feel like I, I had watched a masterpiece. And you know, right now. I don't think like I, I kind of agree with you guys. I don't think it's his masterpiece, but I think that uh, with more views, I don't think we're gonna like this movie less with more views. I think that the more we watch it, the more we're gonna like it, and I think we're gonna hold it in a similar regard that we do with his best movies. I do think it's that good. I think it, like Graham says, it, it, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, I would have said that with Death Proof when I saw. You know, it was a step in the right direction from Kill Bill Volume Two, but. You know, I'm at the point now where I can forget about Death Proof. I can almost forget about Volume Two because of this movie. Um, it's one I plan to see again in the theater, maybe more than once, and it's one that I plan to own and watch again to not only enjoy but study in the future. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, after many, many more viewings, we would be calling this movie a masterpiece. I'm just, like I said, Matt, I, I do think, in a way, he is back like he was with Volume One six years after Jackie Brown. Um, you know, whether that's Pulp Fiction back, that remains to be seen. Um, but again, I d like Graham, I do look forward to his next project uh, with great anticipation, no matter what genre it is. And I, you know, it, with this, you know, I'll, I'll still remain skeptical, like, you know, we always are with movies in general and with ones we are of his. But, you know, I think that my excitement's probably going to get to me and whether or not my expectations are going to be just completely... Uh, shattered, um, you know, we'll see. Either way, I'll be there. Uh, first in line. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me uh, for this podcast. We are looking to have regular podcasting uh, for the for the foreseeable future here now that, now that I'm back at uh, 100% health-wise here. So everybody, please stay tuned to future Film Nerds podcasts and um, – Guys, just thanks again for uh, talking with me about uh, what I think we all agree is one of the most interesting movies of the year so far. Pleasure. Uh, read the blog. Yeah, read the blog. Right on the blog. 